Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is Mara Zapeda. She's a co-founder and CEO of Switchboard, a startup that makes software that helps communities share resources and opportunities. She's also a co-founder of Zebras Unite, a network that is working to create a more ethical and inclusive startup ecosystem. And she's also a former pro radio, uh, uh, pro radio journalist, which I am not, so I'm super intimidated. Mara, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Now, um, this is a special edition of Looks Like New. We're recording um, live here at CU Boulder, uh, so we have uh, an audience uh, with us, and they'll be joining the conversation in a little bit. It's also special because of the guest we have with us, who's one of my favorite leaders working to transform how businesses are made and how they grow and who they are for. We're talking about uh, a question that we're, that we're dwelling on today is what's wrong with unicorns? What could possibly be wrong with unicorns? There are these wonderful, shiny, colorful animals with a horn. Um, uh, but they're also mythical animals. And it's a name that is used for a mythical idea that drives the tech startup economy. In that context, a unicorn is the rare $1 billion company that makes the whole system of widespread crashing and burning among startups seem to work. We're seeing a lot of this kind of crashing and burning lately. Over the last few weeks and months, you know, we've seen um, Uber go through uh, initial public offering on Wall Street and seeing its, its shares tank, the expectations that people had um, kind of collapsing in the, in the face of the market. We've seen WeWork, the um, real estate company that also does uh, uh, fashions itself a tech company as a co-working space conglomerate, um, delaying its initial public offering suggesting that maybe um, this dream of the world-conquering startup founded by jerks might not be so sustainable or plausible after all. And the most successful unicorns like Facebook and Google more and more are facing regulatory crackdowns around the world. So in contrast to the unicorn, uh, Mara Zapeta and her allies are working to build what they call zebras, a kind of startup named after a real animal, not a fake one, which travels in groups rather than always appearing uh, so very alone. Even better, these groups are called dazzles. <laughs> Mara, thank you so much for joining us again. Now, can, can we start by um, uh, going back to when you first began thinking of yourself as a founder? I don't know that I think of myself as a founder. I am <laughs> um, kind of a serial problem solver, and so I end up starting things with friends. I liken what I do much closer to probably how people start bands. I have never been a musician or been in it. I've been in a band when I was like 16, but everything that I tend to do feels more like starting a band where I start to sing some notes and then the percussionist comes along, and then the bassist comes along, and then the guitarist comes along, and then you go from nothing to having 
a group of people that have a shared desire to be in relationship with one another. And so everything I've started has been me warbling out a few notes <laughs> to see if anyone else catches that wave and catches that signal. And so to that degree, I think that even the very first premise of the word founder itself implies an individualism that as artists and creatives and musicians and people who've worked in community and justice know is a completely false premise to begin with. Like, I don't think that Gandhi would call himself a founder, you know, and so social change does not come from a leader self-appointing themselves as the creator because the creative process is inherently collaborative. Um, so that was a long way of saying that I, I know that from a very early age, I was thinking about this the other day, when I was six or seven years old, I had this friend, Alicia, who was a gifted violin virtuoso, like at seven years old, she was just ridiculously talented. And she came to visit me in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I grew up. And our parents were having dinner or lunch or something in the middle of the day. And I remember bringing her out to the driveway and putting a bucket at her feet and telling her to play <laughs> because I just wanted more people to hear Alicia's talent. And I would say that was probably the first memory that I have. But my father was a painter and an artist and I grew up always having a stall next to him where I would make my own art and sell it for $3 and see what the market was interested in. Um, so that was a bit about my journey. But still to this day, everything that I've um, everything I've helped to contribute to has very much been because other people are interested in being in relationship together. And tell us about the the starting of the relationship that led to, to Switchboard and how, you know how this company came into being. So I went to a small liberal arts school in Portland, Oregon called Reed College, um, which some of you might be familiar with because Steve Jobs was its most famous dropout. And when I went to Reed, Reed was transformative for me. Um, I get emotional even thinking about it. I met my husband the first day of college, he's um, here in the back. I met my dearest friends, the first investors in my company. When I started my startup, I lived with my Russian professor in her spare bedroom. I mean, that community, there is not an aspect of my life that Reed hadn't touched. So I was in this constellated network of total love and creative expression. And 10 years later, I was only getting calls from the university asking me for money. I would get the annual call from the freshmen asking me to donate. And I was like, I'm a radio reporter who has so much other experience. Why aren't you asking me for my professional network? So I wrote seven years worth of, emo, of memos to the college president of Reed College asking why they were doing so little for student success. They're being burdened with massive student loan debt. Our entire economy is dependent on the prosperity of this next generation. And it seemed like there was so little investment in their well-being. And so they do what they do with any squeaky wheel alumna. They put you on the alumni board. <laughs> and so um, one evening I was on campus and I knocked on the door of my old dorm room. And this freshman, Martha, was sitting on my bed 10 years later, which was a very weird experience. So Martha was an international student, and she was an econ major and had no networks or social capital in the States. And she said, you know, I'm looking for a finance internship. And I had a friend who worked in investment banking at Credit Suisse, and she got the job that, that summer. 
And it was this light bulb moment where I was like, this gesture is fundamentally about her asking and me offering and creating a healthy marketplace of altruism and generosity. So the institution goes from being this gatekeeper to being a facilitator of the success of the community. So long story short, 20 of my friends and I, I warbled out the tune, <laughs> and 20 of my friends and I got together, we approached the institution, all of us, many of us still had student loan debt at the time, and we said we will donate uh, $20,000, I think it was, to Reed. The only caveat is this, you have to, we will give you $40 for every student or alum you let us help through our social capital, our networks, just being a resource if you need, if they need to crash on my couch. And there was crickets and they said, we don't know how to facilitate that. And we told them that there was something that had been invented called the internet <laughs> and it would help them to facilitate this. Um, so Switchboard was born very much out of our desire to see a greater um, sense of connective, connectedness between students and alumni at Reed. It's now been running for, I think, six years. This is, this, oh gosh, yeah, next week will be its sixth year anniversary. It's even more than that. But um, since then, we went from hearing from no students in that 10 years to now, I mean, a third of the population is on the platform. They've made over 100,000 connections. That one year we started, we heard from no students to 500, just the 20 of us. Um, and so that was the first light bulb moment where I realized that um, I could contribute in some small way. And there's a, a Wired article about this from a few years ago that's kind of like, here is a startup founder who turns down opportunities to replicate what they're, what they're doing, um, su suggesting that, okay, there, here's this tool that is being used to help facilitate communities, and um, rather than pursuing massive scale at all costs, you were being selective. Uh, that seemed weird to them, so they did an article about it. Tell, tell us a little bit about the backstory there. Yeah, so, um, you know, Switchboard fundamentally, if you go and look at it, like my grandmother has looked at it and said, like, this is just the way the world works. It's two buttons, ask and offer. It's very simple. You could do the same taxonomy of organizing information on Twitter, which is how we started it, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. You know, I'm sure you've seen Facebook group now, Facebook groups now that will have the like hashtag ask if you're in one of those situations. So fundamentally, like the two verbs are what power community. And when we started, people really wanted to, they, we were getting thousands of requests, like we want a switchboard for the, you know, fountain pen community, and we want a switchboard for this. And what's so interesting is, um, in order for relationships like that to be transformational and not transactional, you have to have some a community steward who's actually listening and recognizing that every ask is coming from a place of vulnerability and need, and every offer is coming from a place from a desire to give back. And those are two really profound human impulses that if they're mismanaged or not managed at all, um, can lead to a lot of pain. <laughs> So if you have a first-generation student who's posting an ask looking for financial support because they can't pay their rent, and the institution does not have in place a mechanism to listen to that student, you've created something that's even more harmful. And similarly, if you have an alum that's posting an offer you know, to come work with their um, nonprofit in Zimbabwe, and the institution is not listening to and responding to that gesture of generosity, it's more painful for them. And so we were seeing that that tool, unstewarded, could lead to more pain. 
And that was when we started to develop this services line to our business um, to diversify the business model. And fundamentally, the institutions came to us and behind closed doors, they said, we don't have any way to do this. We don't know how to listen and serve our members because the modern institution does, is so siloed and does not cross-pollinate between departments. So you would have someone over here in career services that had a need and someone over here in alumni affairs that could meet that need. And six, only 16% of campuses do cross-collaborations between career services and alumni affairs, <laughs> which is just the most huge miss, missed opportunity from a um, market perspective. So um, that's when we started to realize that we had to back way up and start to teach a lot of the principles that you teach around um, like human-centered design and engagement in institutions and spaces that fundamentally have no familiarity with that concept to begin with. Now, when did you start moving from focusing on getting this company going to, uh, to, to working on how companies get going in the first place? Um, how did you go from being a startup founder or, or uh, uh, singer or whatever it is to, um, to someone out to change how startups are done? I mean, most of everything I do is because I'm so frustrated that it's the solution is so obvious. <laughs> um, and so, uh, let's see. So I was in Portland, Oregon, which is known to be very progressive and, you know, forward thinking. And all of this, you know, this has all happened in the last two years, which is a bit crazy to think back to. But the series of events that happened was I had a um, the dear friend Jennifer Brandell, who's the founder of a sister company called Harkin, which I encourage all of you to check out what Switchboard does for what started in higher ed, Jen does for media companies and newsrooms. So she says, instead of the institution trying to make assumptions about what the community wants, um, why don't we just start by asking the public what they would like us to report on? And just that place of subverting the power so that they become servants instead of um, this patriarchal model of delivering what they think people should know. So Jen and I were in conversation, have been in conversation for years since starting our startups, and we were starting to see that um, what you being a startup is just this kind of isolated thing, but if you pick your head up and start to look at where you are, you're in an ecosystem. And so most immediately, you're in an ecosystem of your own backyard. And startups don't have a culture of civic engagement because they are designed to exit. And so there's no reason to be invested in or attached to the community that you're in, which was the first thing that was jaw-dropping. If you have any desire to be of service in your local community, to give you some perspective, if you were a bank 30 years ago, you would have an entire line item that was called community engagement where you would be working directly with community organizations and with public policymakers to advance the community's interests, to maintain your standing in the community as a community player. Well, the business model of startups is completely misaligned with that because investors are just waiting for you to exit and consolidate with a company out of state. So the first thing we invented was um, a chamber of commerce, oddly. <laughs> uh, and so that created an infrastructure for values-aligned businesses like mine that wanted to engage with the city on a policy level um, around issues like affordable housing and um, addressing upstream causes of homelessness rather than criminalizing that population, working on active transportation and sustainable transportation, and working on access to capital for underrepresented entrepreneurs. And so these is three issue areas, in the traditional sense, business groups would be adversarial towards that 
agenda, and we were coming out and saying we were for them. So we have a lot of B Corps and so on. So we're the fastest growing chamber of commerce in the city with over 400 members in two years. The next like Russian nesting doll out of that is the business model itself, which I know we'll talk about. But fundamentally, we have this massive chasm of capital where many businesses are too fast for traditional bank loans and too slow for venture capital. So what ends up happening is since the financial crisis, you have this massive consolidation of small and medium-sized business lending, which is where a lot of new companies and startups would sit. Well, most, business, most bankers don't entertain loans of under $100,000 anymore because it doesn't, make, it doesn't pencil for them financially. So if they're only lending to a million plus businesses, we all know what businesses those are, right? So you have a, a $54 billion gap in the market right now for small and medium-sized business loans, which means that there's this, you know, and venture capital is not going to solve that problem because they're not interested in economic development for the many. And then that final piece, um, kind of the final Russian nesting doll around that was we, would, we wrote a series of blog posts. Um, it started with a blog post called Sex and Startups in 2016, and then Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break. And we sent this flare, Jen and I um, sent this flare and found some additional co-founders in Astrid Schultz and Ania Williams. We heard from 4,000 investors and founders who said, whatever you're talking about here is what, my, what the wavelength is that I'm on as well. So we now have 45 chapters on six continents of uh, fellow bandmates, I guess <laughs> is what we'll call them. And t let's break down that problem a little bit about mm -hmm. that gap. What kinds of things fall into that gap? What kinds of opportunities fall between the, you know, the small business and the, and the venture capital? Like literally everything, <laughs> which is just terrifying. <laughs> it's literally everything. Um, women receive 5% of traditional bank loans and 2% of venture capital. Women of color is practically statistically zero. And so, you know, for those of you, commercial lending essentially has gone through this shift. It used to be relationship-based because you didn't have the intervention of technological products, right? So you would walk into your community bank that you had done business with, and they would know you. They would know your profits and revenues. And so if you didn't get that invoice that month or if you needed to hire an additional person, it would be a handshake based on your character and standing in the community. Well, along came the intervention of modern-day lending, which was focused on the five Cs of credit, and the, the two primary ones now that prevent people from accessing capital are collateral. So if you don't own a house, primarily, or you're not in manufacturing, and credit. So if you, for whatever reason, put um, you know, a bunch of your merchandise on your credit card and you're carrying too much debt on your credit card, you cannot get a bank loan. Like I, and so if you're a technology company, if you are a, a new growth sector company that doesn't have anything to collateralize, you are not eligible for a loan. I was declined a loan this year from my lender because my company was growing too fast. And they said that the revenues were uneven and therefore I couldn't get a loan. So that's on one side. And on the other side, you have venture capital, which is exclusively looking to maximize shareholder returns they're looking for hockey stick unicorns. They're not interested in justice and economic development. And in between there, you kind of have you know, the murky middle of crowdfunding, but if you don't have a crowd to fund from, if you come from an underserved community, then there's injustice in that system also. So I used to be an economic reporter for National Public Radio, and it was just, it, it was like looking under the hood of something and just seeing a, a like, it was like, 
I guess I, the feeling is just grief. It was so much grief realizing that if you had an idea or a solution, the system was set up to fundamentally not support you. The only way that you were supported would be if you had an asset in the form of a house or something collateralizable, or if you were a white man here. And everyone else, 83% of entrepreneurs, receive neither bank loans or venture capital. So we now have the lowest rate of entrepreneurship in the country. And while it might not feel that way, it's because these businesses aren't able to actually like self-actualize into companies that are lasting more than five years. So it's just a bunch of false starts. What that means is that you have an environment that only allows for massive monopolies and gets rid of, rid of traditional Main Street businesses, which are the core of generational wealth, <laughs> our families, um, sane work environments, and community, you know, community economic development and job creation, um, never mind shared ownership as well. So we're in a significant crisis right now, and it's difficult to describe because a lot of these topics are esoteric. Um, so if, if anything I've just said you don't know, like let's talk about it in the Q&A because I'm, I'm doing my best to make it as clear as possible, <laughs> but it's, it's not easy to follow. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Mara Zepeda, who is uh, with the Zebras Unite Network. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by the KGNU Listener members and by Quish Sustainable Wealth. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Mara Zepeda of the Zebras Unite Network about uh, unicorns and the future of startups. Now, Mara, tell me a little bit about what Zebras Unite is looking to do to change this. You've talked about uh, a gulf, a gap in the startup financing landscape. Uh, what can be done? Great question. Um, so there's a, two audiences that we're trying, there are many audiences that Zebras Unite is trying to serve, but I'll focus on a couple. The first is that there are entrepreneurs out there that are looking for a community of practice to find like-minded businesses. So as we defined a zebra, as Nathan said at the beginning, these are businesses that are not interested in disruption, but rather repair. And what we've seen, especially with the 2016 election, is that the business model is the message, the type of capital that you rely on and the type of capital that you um, raise fundamentally sets your course as a business. And so if your business model is dependent on advertising, then it means that you have an extractive business model that is only aligned with a certain type of capital. Um, and what we were seeing is we needed to have new types of capital. So fundamentally, on the one hand, Zebras Unite is a community of practice for entrepreneurs that are interested in solving real social problems that don't think of themselves as social impact entrepreneurs because every single company is a social impact company. Uber has a social impact, Airbnb has a social impact. There's not a company right now that doesn't have a social impact. And so it's a, complete, it's a completely false naming to say there are social impact businesses over here and normal businesses over here. That's a false binary. So we have a community of practice that's aiming to support entrepreneurs by matching them with the capital community and culture that they wish to see. And that is all driven by them. So this is a very grassroots organization where Zebra founders are pushing forward the agenda that they wish to see in community together in their chapter and in their space. Um, so the Native American um, women's community in New Mexico's chapter looks very different from what's going on in Mexico City, which looks very different than what's going on in Portland. And that's because 
regions have cultures and the capital we create has to be respectful. On the other side of it is creating new capital and new um, capital systems for these types of companies. I just had the honor of working with 16 um, lenders from across the country over the last two days in Denver and we're seeing um, sub $5 million funds that are you know, fewer than 10 years old get off the ground in communities like Louisville and Reno and Cincinnati and Detroit and San Diego. And these are many of them are founders like me who are trying to solve our own problem of actually inventing new capital. The challenge with that is that traditional funders, specifically foundations or government, see these businesses as risky. <laughs> And you can like trot out data until the cows come home about how they actually perform, which is very, very well, never mind the community impact they have. But there's a fundamental disconnect between the perceived and actual risk of creating new capital systems, which is what we're trying to better understand and educate about and solve. Now, what are the kind of barriers that you find you found yourself running into I, in building <laughs> this? <laughs> there's this? I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I live in Portland, Oregon, and there's a... Um, dam in Washington state that was the largest dam in that was ever built and it was blocking the salmon uh, and the salmon run there and the salmon over time they kept slamming into the uh, wall into the dam wall because they couldn't get back to their spawning ground and they maladapted to be gigantic so if you look at a normal salmon you know it's like this big or whatever and like these salmon were just huge because they had gotten so big out of like this adversity and sometimes I feel like this giant salmon that I've just been slamming against the wall. <laughs> so when you ask like what barriers are there, I, like it's hard to even know what egress there is <laughs> that I found. Um, like the barriers are just absolutely massive but I'll start with you can't start a loan fund or you can't start alternative capital without a track record and you can't get a track record without capital. That's really the basic thing. So I've started a fund in um, Portland on our team was the first woman professor man of management at Wharton, two Ivy League MBAs, a PhD of economics from Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And we walked into funders, never mind that we were serial entrepreneurs, had managed organizations of $10 million annually. We walked into funders and they said, you don't have a track record, so you're unproven and untested. So the day that I was declined for my loan, I received from the state $150,000 as the first commitment to our fund after three years of work. Um, and that is us having an amount of extraordinary privilege that I can't even begin to fathom. And so when I see some of my African-American founder friends that decide that they want to go launch a fund, the chasm is just insurmountably large because there's no capital to get started. Um, so foundationally, when you, start, when you think about wanting to start alternative capital, the track record issue is the one that is always used to discredit and exclude you from the system. If you get past that, funders will say you're risky. So when we started our fund, they asked us for a 100% loan loss reserve, which means that if I start a million dollar fund, I need to have a million dollars just sitting in the bank doing nothing, because their assumption was that 100% of the loans were gonna go south. So we attached ourselves to the um, horse of Colorado Lending Source here in Denver, and Mike O'Donnell has been doing unbelievable social justice community lending in that community for 30 years. Their track record of loans like these that are character-based are 2%. 
So somewhere in the chasm of 2% and 100%, we have to find something. So the loan loss reserve is the next really critical piece. Um, and then I think the third piece is just that the technical assistance of readying underrepresented founders, women and people of color, has been way steeper than we thought. Um, communities have experienced extraordinary financial trauma from our financial system. In New Mexico, only recently was legislation passed that made it that predatory lenders should cap at their interest rate at 125% instead of the 600% that they were lending at, at predatory lending outfits outside of reservations. So there's the word loan has come to mean is very traumatizing for communities. And I think one thing that we're really starting to appreciate is the amount of handholding and like therapy, for lack of a better word, to get people to start to see capital as a resource that can create positive influence in their community and not something that has the power to destroy or oppress them, which is fundamentally what a lot of financing options have done for these marginalized communities. Now, does this require new kinds of mechanisms, do you think, or does it require just re-adapting and orienting things like loans or, or kind of conventional equity investment? I think there's a lot of different options. Like, I think, you know, if you look at a spread to make it clear of risk, right? On the one hand, 100% risk is like grants. So we need a lot more grants going to entrepreneurs so that fundamentally they can fail because these entrepreneurs aren't given the chance to fail. Whereas if you're a white man in Silicon Valley, you can set on fire millions of dollars and just start again the next week. Um, so first is risk capital that just allows people to fail so that they can get back on their feet. I think then you have companies that are very much like zebras where maybe the return is 50%. These are companies that don't know whether they are, need to be a for-profit or a non-profit, and so they need to explore that business model. At the 0%, you have things like the loan loss reserve to just make this capital stable. I think there's an opportunity for a very healthy market rate of 8 to 10% using things like character-based lending and revenue-based financing. I think you start to get to things that are out there right now, like cabbage loans that are very high interest, and so we're kind of replicating the predatory lending space there. And then I think that there are some zebras that could be unicorns, frankly, um, whose ideas are so ripe for this moment that I don't think that zebras and unicorns are misaligned, um, but it's not going to be in the form of an attention economy that's extractive. So I think that there are ways, I mean, and you do work with Jason Wiener, and so I think um, there are ways to modify a lot of what we have, but so much of your work has been around shared ownership, right? And if you create models where the capital is aligning with the people that are benefiting, you can start to have shared ownership and interest in the success of the company, which is fundamentally way more fair. Mm -hmm. And are there are there um, companies or funds that you uh, uh, you can share just as examples, so we can kind of visualize what a zebra can look like? Um, of, from a funding perspective. Uh, well, they can from a funding perspective from what they do. Yep. You know how they might do things differently from. Uh, some of the kind of startup narratives that we might be more used to. Well, you have Savvy Co-op, you know, which is fundamentally about how patients can share, can get paid for their patient data that they're sharing, and so the user is at the center of the place of benefit. Um, you have companies that are, like, I mean, it's interesting because there are companies like Mailchimp, like Mailchimp was never, never raised venture, and so they're able to give back philanthropically in their community of Atlanta way more than any other company would have. Um, 
And then there are so many other like smaller companies that are doing really interesting work where, again, they're at this intersection. So as an example, in New Mexico, there are a number of Native American founders that have food, food service businesses or um, kind of food and bev businesses. They all went in on a commercial kitchen together so that they could operationalize and distribute their products. So yeah, there are a lot of examples out there that are hiding in nooks and crannies, but we're finding that um, we just need more. Yeah. How about on the fund side? Are there funds that are really trying to to make this work, uh, other than yours, of course? Yeah, <laughs> there are. There are. Um, you know, we were meeting with 16 lenders across the country. So in uh, Boston, you have the Ujima Fund, which is trying to get more people invested, uh, more investors from the community, and so that's a, a more community investment approach. The Ujima Fund, um, Mortar Capital, uh, which is in Cincinnati. You have people doing community lending there, um, Access Ventures in Boston. Uh, so there's a number of um, uh, co-op capital in New Mexico is actually working on, they created, they passed legislation to get that the predatory lending rate. If you are a lender lending at that rate, then you get fined and those fines go into a pool that then makes loans to the people who are denied the credit. So there are a lot of little artisanal ones. Um, here in your home state, though, Colorado Lending Source is doing incredible character-based lending. So I really tend to focus um, on and be interested more on the loan model because it's more sane. And then there are venture funds and more traditional equity funds that would probably identify themselves as zebras. And we point to like Tiny Capital and Earnest, um, Earnest Ventures and NDVC as being um, folks that are that are doing kind of more sane work around the equity space. And does this help address some of the big challenges? I mean, I could imagine somebody um, hearing this and saying, oh, okay, well, you're talking about enabling more sm small businesses to get going. You know, maybe some could get bigger, but um, aren't, aren't we just really working around the margins here? Um, you know, we need to take on Facebook and Google. You know, is this kind of model about that, or is you know what's what's the strategy in terms of its relationship to these big, powerful monopolies that you know the startup economy has created? I think there are a lot of companies that just don't know what they are going to be when they grow up, right? Mm. So you have companies that are coming up, and like you could have never imagined what's happened with sustainable energy, right? And now those companies are large because there's a market for sustainability products. Um, I think we just have to get more solutions to market so that we have a greater diversity. I think of it much more from an ecological perspective, that it's like we don't just want to eat corn, and so you can have this monoculture of corn, but that's not an ecological success. And so similarly, we need to have more diverse solutions in market so that we can use our imaginations. I mean, it's fundamentally entrepreneurship is a creative act. And if I don't even know if the objective is to go head to head with monopolies, right? It's about actually like living in community and um, not self-imploding before our, our planet <laughs> destructs and trying to do something. We're just out of, you know, it's it's not even in our control anymore because a monopolistic view isn't isn't sustainable in the long term. Um, so if shareholder profit is what you're looking for and people are moving closer to a place of conscious capitalism, these companies will be the ones to fundamentally succeed. Now, back to you starting Switchboard. Are there options that you wish you had that you're trying to help 
create for for others? I mean, what what is the what is the experience of the founder back in the position you were when you were just getting going that you'd like people to be able to have? Um, what's the difference when you're when you know when the zebras mm -hmm. are successful? I think there's a lot. Like, um, if I came to your university right now and pitched Switchboard, the other products and market are all started by venture-founded men who used to work at Google. And so we would go up for contracts, and they would just bargain basement their prices so they could undercut us. And they were using venture as a way to get into your institution. So I think first of all, it's um, vendors or it's uh, institutions starting to have some awareness of who they're buying software and services from and that there's a different values alignment. Oftentimes they don't ask those questions. Um, I mean, I think the second piece is just being able to find community so you don't feel so alone in solving these problems. And then I think, uh, like I wish that I had known how big this system is and been more, um, just this is a really big system. I don't know how else to describe this. It's not like you can think that you're an individual entrepreneur, and the moment you look under the hood of these systems, if you're a systems thinker or you're interested in social change, you're going to have to pace yourself for the marathon of what you're up against because you're quickly going to find that the success of your brand and your marketing campaign is fundamentally meaningless if you see indigenous women that can't get their businesses started. Like if you have a heart in your chest, you, you become so invested in everyone else's success. And it just takes a really big heart <laughs> to to, um, to hold all of that because all of the solutions matter. It's not just your success. You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Mara Zapeda of uh, the Zebras Unite Network about unicorns and zebras and the future of startups. Uh, stick with us and we'll be right back. like new on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Mara Zapeda of the Zebras Unite Network, also founder, co-founder and CEO of Switchboard, a startup that uh, makes software that helps communities share resources and opportunities. Now, we're here at the University of Colorado today with a, a live audience, uh, and we're going to turn uh, to the people here in the room uh, for questions and comments uh, for Mara. Um, who would like to get started? Hi, Mara. Um, I'm Sally Hatcher. Thank you so much for coming to see you. This is fantastic. And I'm really curious about um, uh, mindset and how you're changing the way people talk about zebras. I remember when your article came out and went viral two years ago, and it was such a big deal because I thought it put words around a concept that a lot of us were seeing, 
which is that if you vote on one unicorn and the rest be damned, you're really missing the whole way that this can affect our entire economy and give job development to a much larger group of people and, and ultimately grow something that's much more valuable than just a few unicorns. So I'm, I'm curious then, your talk today has been about um, how to get financing to these companies. And that is exactly right, you know, follow the money. Um, is it about following the money? Is it about changing the mindset? Where, where are you really seeing that, that you're, you're having the most impact at this point? Hmm. Um, I think different people need different things is the best way to describe it. I think there are some people that are going to the mat in really intense ways on the capital piece, which is probably, I would say, the hardest piece to tackle. You need to be able to afford lawyers, and you have to give yourself um, massive education around esoteric topics. So there are capital innovators, a lot of founders, um, people that actually wanted to go into public policy and then realized that entrepreneurship is the place that has the most leverage. So you have groups of those warriors. They're just warriors that are not paying themselves because they're trying to get capital into their own systems. And they recognize that, the yeah, follow the money. You just have to do that. The media is really hungry right now for like anti-unicorn rhetoric, and so you have other players that are approaching this from the standpoint of like we can shoehorn values in to Google and Facebook, and we just have to cram these values down their throat, and eventually they'll come to see the light, which um, does not pencil <laughs> to my mind. It's just much easier. If you want ethical technology, just start with ethical founders to begin with that have a oh, compass. Um, and then I think from a mindset perspective, probably the most difficult part of my work is that this is a systems play. There's not a corner that isn't touched. And so back to Nathan's question about kind of what needs to change, it's that institutions like this one need to be thinking about entrepreneurship from a systems perspective. And by that I mean like you need to be looking at history as much as you need to be looking at ecology, as much as you need to be looking at philosophy and economics and political science and cap, you know, capital markets. And I wish that there were more programs that looked at the constellation of how entrepreneurship touches everything that all of us are involved with. Every dollar you spend, like we were at the cafe with the rainbow on Pearl Street, like mind the kind of Grateful Dead cafe, you know. They don't take credit cards. And I just thought that was so interesting. Like they've decided to check out of that particular financial system for whatever reason. I don't know if that's a values decision, but that's fascinating to me that there are some places that are cash-based, whereas you have companies like Stripe that are trying to encourage a cashless society that exclude the unbankable, right? Um, so like it's uh, this problem and this like the opportunity for I think entrepreneurship is um, the single lens through which you can look at literally everything. There is not a part of the universe that capital doesn't touch because it powers everything that we do. And so I wish, I just wish from my perspective that educators and, and universities were able to take a more holistic approach. And, and we get a lot of, I was mentioning, we get a lot of interest from MBA students and entrepreneurship students that are asking us for like zebra MBAs, like Z ZBAs, and departments that want to learn the methodology. Because um, the methodology is just having a consciousness and an awareness of, of systems design. And so for the people that are able to think in that way, we're really interested to connect with them. 
Hi. I'm wondering if you have any hopeful stories of impact in public policy. Hopeful? Yeah. Um, In public policy. Uh, Sure. I mean, um, um, Portland is an example. So Portland had to do a fundamental reshift of their economic development office. So they went from a real estate development office to more economic development, and they are working. They ha- now have a collective of eleven community-based economic development groups um, that they're supporting to help women and minority entrepreneurs, called the Inclusive Business Resource Network. Um, you have areas like Oakland that have poured a ton of public and private capital into reorienting their economic development. Things like what's happening in New Mexico. Um, On the media space, the state of New Jersey was the first, I don't know what ultimately happened there, but the legislature was the first to start investing in media and news media because they recognized that the disruption of public knowledge was a threat to democracy. And so the Senate passed, I think, the first time in the country, like $5 million budget to support local newsrooms. so, I mean, it's slow, it's really slow. And then what you see in New Mexico, you know, where you're attacking predatory lenders. So every single state um, has a flavor that they can try to, like an angle that they can address from a public policy standpoint, but it's kind of few and far between, and there's not really like a national policy effort that's pushing things through. Um, the, the advocacy and membership trade organization called um, the American Enterprise Organization, AEO, does a lot of work around this, so you might want to check that out too. Uh, Thanks for this talk. I really enjoyed it, and um, uh, it makes me think differently about some of the work we do across campus and in the community around entrepreneurship. I've got one point that did not ring true for me, at least in Boulder, and then I'll, I'll turn that into a question. Um, which is, you, you mentioned that the traditional VC unicorn model does not lend itself to community investment. Um, in my experience, both anecdotally as well as logically, I'm not sure that's right. So, you know, anecdotally, you look at the rise of mentor-driven accelerators, which lend uh, or lean very heavily upon pools of 75 to 100 mentors who are investing for, as volunteers in the community. Um, Additionally, the Pledge 1% program, which came out of Boulder, Ryan Martins and Rally on, uh, you know, the idea of companies at the start saying 1% of our equity is going to go if we have success to uh, community-spirited ventures. Um, And then structurally, I think that the instability around startups and especially big swing venture startups uh, provides everybody ample motivation to be connected in the community because you know if this doesn't want to work out, you want to cycle back into something else. So that, that's the part that didn't quite ring true to me. I'd, I'd welcome a response, but then uh, the question I have is, it seems to me, and, and I'm picking up on Nathan's point, that in terms of lots of the population that you feel like has been left out of the entrepreneurship system, involving them in these networks is one of the central questions. And I, I don't think that's competing with helping zebras get off the ground, but it's recognizing that it's precisely this community volunteerism that relies heavily upon networks that is exclusive to those who aren't already part of the network. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts about ways to be more inclusive within some of the traditional VC ecosystem and companies that are aspiring for, uh, for scalability. Yep, those are great questions. Okay, so first of all, on the, um, and you all have a very special community here in, Den- in the Colorado, I should say, like the work that Brad Feld has been doing and Jerry Colonna, and I mean, just the ecosystem building and Techstars and everything. Uh, 1% is nothing. <laughs> 1% is not a meaningful number. It, 
it may feel good, but if you're looking at a $30 million exit, like, you know, what is it, 300K, like that's just not even, um, that is not enough to fundamentally change things. And so I don't think we can have a victory lap around that number. I think it's a good starting point and we point to it a lot in op-eds. But as an example, when we were starting our Chamber of Commerce, the, um, the companies that were able to give the most to make, that Chamber of Commerce went on to help advocate for $2 billion of school funding. And the companies that were able to give the most were the ones that were bootstrapped because they didn't have to answer to investors saying, well, why are you spending 2% on community engagement, right? So I just think, I don't, I don't agree with the premise that 1% is a victory lap. I think we need to be sharing prosperity in a, a way broader way. Um, the second piece is around VC, so that's true. Um, you have a lot of investors that are coming from the right place. The, the issue with venture is that venture is eligible to people that are high net worth individuals that are accredited investors with over a million dollars of assets. So when you look at angel conferences and venture, you know, venture funds, all of those people have a million dollars or more of net worth in order to participate to get on the cap table. And so you can mentor until the cows come home, but there are a lot of people that are excluded from ever getting on a cap table because they don't have access to that wealth. Um, and so it's, it's, it's strange to be preparing these companies that are looking for financing that are coming from underserved communities. And at a certain point, you like hand them over to the VCs that are trying to mentor them to a place of exit only so that the same people can get wealthy over and over again because that's how exits work. Um, so when I think you follow the money from the cap table, fundamentally you see like what nine on the cap table is something like between nine and 15% of people on cap tables are women. Like that is a gross injustice, never mind how other communities of color are, are being treated because they don't have generational wealth to get on the cap table. Um, and an answer to the third question around mentorship, I think mentorship is really toxic right now for communities um, around inclusion, right? You see this effort to try to like shoehorn in a, a face of color as a means of fixing the problem. And what I see is the most promising path is for people um, to come from a place of real humility and service and just say, what do, what do you need? What does your community need? Does, do you even want to be a part of this club? Or can I find a way to help you start, like do your own thing? Because all of these communities are doing their own things anyway. And there's such a place of um, opportunity to really become curious about and lift up what they are doing in their own spaces and their own circles that are far out of view of white privilege and say, just, I'm gonna open my checkbook and just, like I have a woman, of, there's a woman in Portland right now who's starting entrepreneurship showers for black women. And a woman comes and she gives her pitch in a circle of other black women. And those women each write checks between 50 and $100. So like sponsor that event, you know, like go and sponsor that event. And um, yeah, I think the mentorship place is, is a one that makes me very itchy because it presupposes that the traditional venture angel way of high growth scale is what we're all optimizing for. And I'm just really curious about all of the other solutions out there that might help all of us benefit to learn about entrepreneurship. And what would it look like to become curious about those methodologies instead of forcing a particular worldview around blitzscaling to, to that company. Um, so I really appreciate your point and I take it and I hear it. And, and the white men investors that have been the most valuable to the communities that I've served have um, 
played very quietly in the background of anonymously writing checks to get people on airplanes to go to conferences, to pitch, you know, to get their product to market, to cover that invoice that's just a little bit late. Like, there's no questions asked, and they're just like, if you need the $5,000, I'm not going to make you beg for three months to raise venture when you just need $5,000 so you can pay for your childcare so you can get your hot sauce on the shelf. And that's what I would love to see more of, is just like open the checkbook and stop trying to mentor these founders to death. We have founders in Portland that were in the New York Times that are homeless right now. And that are just meeting with, with you know, I just learned of a woman who became a surrogate because she couldn't get 30K to patent her design. Like, that, like the injustice of what's happening in these communities is just not one where we're going to mentor our way out of it by talking to them about a user acquisition strategy. Like it's it's really deep. So I really appreciate your point, and I, and it's hard because I've I was mentored in those communities, and there are a lot of people in those communities that I love as people and as friends. But the hubris of thinking that you know something better than someone else is a place of power that um is creates pain. It creates a lot of pain. I think we have time for one more. So one of the things I, I kind of wanted to play off is that accelerators also have a similar portfolio play to venture capital firms. So typically the top performing companies are the ones that get paid attention to the most as opposed to maybe the less, un less unicorny looking ones, which I think really feeds into um, Mara's argument. But then Mara, my question for you is, um, the different is around the difference between disruption and repair and how how do we support those types of organizations um, you're obviously doing a ton of that but then examples around what repair looks like versus what disruption looks like in practice yeah um, I think it, it very much comes down to asking the question of who benefits in the business model, which is why the business model work is so important. So as we know, Business Roundtable just came out and announced, you know, these are the top 200 CEOs in the Fortune 500, I believe, um, of SAP. I can't remember which. They came out and made a monumental generation-shifting statement a month ago that said that not only are we going to consider our shareholders, but we will consider the needs of employees, vendors, the community and the environment, and and, the, and uh, that's bananas for someone to say. And so, if that's true, then our next question would be: Okay, well, now you're basically talking about like a repair model. I mean, you're talking about a model in which you go from only shareholder profit to a multi-stakeholder environment where many people are prospering. And so, I guess I would like put the question back to you: If we now have that new conceptualization of prosperity. Like, what would that look like to you in practice? What, what, what question would you have for Amazon if you wanted to follow up with Jeff Bezos in two years and say, so tell me how it went with considering your employees? Like, what is the question that you would ask that would be the evidence and indicator that, what they, that they delivered on what they promised? Do you have an idea of, like, where you would look? Yeah. I mean, a, the blunt object is ownership, right? Do those employees have more shares would be like one place. Do they have increased benefits would be another place that you would look. 
Are they being given the opportunity to start their own types of enterprises? Is the cost of housing in their community gone down? Are you participating civically? What is your environmental impact? What are you doing on the policy level to ensure shared ownership systems? How are you doing different vendor procurement so that more diverse vendors are wor working with you? How are you assessing? I mean, you would have a bunch of other questions as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't actually have any answers except to say that the single biggest piece of advice I can give is like, if you have that question, sit down for three minutes and write what the list of questions is, that would be your impulse to ask that CEO to determine if they were living up to what they said. And I think that that um, business roundtable example highlights the fact that I think we're in a moment where there is a new openness to um, what is the question of what is the company, uh, what does it look like, what do financing terms look like? You know, uh, uh, th that's happening in the venture world. It's happening in the social impact world, where where the the uh, the rules are not fixed, and there's things inst institutional forms that once felt like they were written in stone. Uh, now people are asking new questions about them from. You know Elizabeth Warren's proposal around co-determination, where you would have workers on on company boards, to uh, uh, to investors looking at new kinds of um, uh, uh, deals that that uh, uh, play in the middle between debt and equity, and and uh, uh, meet more precisely the needs of particular businesses. So all of this kind of fits into that moment, and I think there's an opening for for real change to happen. Mara, thank you so thank much you. for joining yeah, us. Thank Thanks you. Uh, to our, um, our uh, audience and participants here at CU Boulder. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Mara Zapeda. She's a co-founder and CEO of Switchboard and a founder in the Zebras Unite movement. Um, and uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, unicorns and zebras and the future of startups. Find out more at zebrasunite.com. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at cmci.colorado.edu slash medlab. Uh, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. Thanks so much for joining us and hope you'll join again next time.